HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome to HRN on tour at Charleston Wine and Food 2022. I'm Dylan Hoyer, and today we are broadcasting live from the heart of the Culinary Village. This episode is made possible thanks to the support of Ben's Friends and Indigo Road Restaurant Group. We have four incredible chefs here with us today who all took part in an event yesterday evening titled Exploring Black Spirituality Through Food. It was a relaxed, love-filled dinner examining the intersections and histories of black spirituality and religion as they relate to food. Around the table here, we have chef and artist Omar Tate, chef and author Sybil St. Aud Tate. Together, they co-founded Honeysuckle Projects, a multifaceted food company that focuses on the nuanced cultures and cuisines of the black diaspora. Take us through how Honeysuckle is carrying out a mission to tear down structural barriers through food. Okay, I'll start. Uh, so, I mean, first and foremost, we are, we are both such, we're very much so rooted in our ancestry and history and culture. Uh, and that, that really is the foundation of what Honeysuckle is doing. Um, the second level of that, the second tier, is definitely caring for our community. Um, and what we're seeing happen in marginalized communities and inner cities is that the folks that really deserve and need the food, the fresh food, the local sustainable food, aren't getting that. And so there's the barrier. And so Honeysuckle stems, aims to kind of disintegrate that barrier in a sense. And so we grow our own. We have relationships with local black farmers in the Philadelphia tri-state area. Um, and we just make good food for people in the communities that have been left behind for so long. By, by so many folks. And, and Omar, tell us a little bit about how many forms this project takes on. I know you're fundraising for a new um, element right now in West Philadelphia. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, so it's a very layered project. Sybil already kind of touched on the farming, but there's so much intersection, right? I mean, when you think about um, other institutions like, like a Blue Hill, for example, um, the layering where you're connecting land and uh, ingredients and seed and knowledge and research, it's the, it's the same concept, you know. Um, we, as, as, as black folks, you know, that layering is going to take a different form and a different shape because um, there's just so many different things that are more important to us or, or affect us as a culture. Um, and so the art, uh, the, the research and uh, record keeping, um, the archiving, all these different things uh, make up the composition of what this project is. But at its core, as a front-facing identity, it's a grocery cafe um, with added community elements. 
and it's ex it's pure existence. It's like we're not we're not intending to step out and and tear down structural barriers. It's the existence of a black business of a black person that inherently has to tear down barriers to be present. And so you know I wouldn't I wouldn't broad stroke at it like like a, like an activist project because it's not. I just I think that like being black in this industry forces you to kind of be that. You know. Yeah. And next, we want to welcome Valerie Irwin, who's also here with us. She is a longtime Philadelphia chef and social justice activist who, for 12 years, owned the critically acclaimed Geechee Girl Rice Cafe, which specialized in the cuisine and culture of the low country of Savannah and Charleston, where Valerie's grandparents were born. She now serves on the board of CCAP, a culinary scholarship program for high school students and is on the board of the Philadelphia Interfaith Hospitality Network, which is an anti-homelessness organization. Valerie, tell us a little bit about how your career in food has been intertwined with giving back to your community. I, first of all, I will say I've always been interested in politics and political movement and social justice, although only in recent years have I realized how much of a through line that's been in, in my life. But even in high school, I worked on political campaigns. And in college, I was in, involved in some act, activist work with, uh, with employees at the, at the school. So it's just something I was always interested in. The food aspect of it really started to occurring to me more when I was started in the restaurant industry and the more the more I got into it I realized first of all how segregated that space is especially in fine dining and I kind of grew up in fine dining restaurants so there you know there would be black people in the kitchen now you see uh, black and brown people. When I was growing up, there weren't that many Latino people in, in Philadelphia uh, downtown. So, but you definitely see black people in the kitchen, but you never see them in the dining room, and you would never see them in any kind of management position. And if you were somebody who rose to those positions, you were looked, you know, like, uh, you know, I got promoted. I wouldn't say, you know, I got promoted. And, but I think that people thought of me as the exceptional black person. Like, I was thought of as the exception rather than looking at what, what's wrong with that system that allows just a couple of people through. And then when I opened my restaurant, I, w I was really interested in local food. And there were farmers that I knew that were in the area. And I would use local farmers. I shop from a farmer's cooperative but that's when I started looking more at what's what's the what's wrong with the system and that's what I think about with everything in my social justice work not yes we can do things as individuals but what we really have to look at is where can the system be changed so that you can at at the end, it'll be something different from, for everyone and not just one person or one family or one neighborhood. so much. And finally, let's welcome Monica Hairston O'Connell, a journeyer, baker, writer, and death doula. She is interested in using food and cake in particular. 
as a way to remember forward ideas about ceremony, ritual, care, hospitality, black joy, nostalgia, death, and grief, and culinary informed definitions of seasonal, local, and sustainable. Can you describe to us what this looks like in practices? Maybe give us an example of, of one of these cakes and, and what it symbolizes. Because your First work all, encompasses hello. so much. And hello, and welcome. We'll start you off with a big question. Thank you. Um, First of all, I'm just really thrilled and humbled to be here uh, among these talented thinkers um, is really inspiring for me. So a lot of my work is just about making or trying to make the kinds of connections that will expand our conversation. I think when we talk about hospitality or we talk about sustainability or seasonality, any of those buzzwords that you were just mentioning, um, we tend to look at them in a, in a very narrow and usually culturally specific colonial capitalism informed way. And I think that there are ways to think about sustainability, for example, as very much connected to black spirituality, for example, as connected to our well-being. Um, as connected to the kind of right relationship that we try to be in with nature and with each other, as opposed to just a, a, a market opportunity. So my goal is really to use cakes, which I think are just so powerful because they're always at the center of our life celebrations and our ceremonies, um, even some of the ones that are more sour, sorrowful as opposed to, um, you know, joyful, to use those cakes as a way to, like, make some of those connections. So how can I think about the flavor stories and the design of the cake, and how can I think about the rituals that are surrounding how we're consuming the cake um, in a way that'll get us to maybe think a little bit more expansively about some of the other things? Thank you so much. And I want to talk about the event yesterday. This entire meal was inspired by the culinary memoir, If I Can Cook, You Know God Can. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that book and, and what it means to you all? Sure. Um, so when, when Omar and I were, were um, coming together to kind of thinking about what kind of experience we wanted to come back to Charleston and create, um, we knew that after such a, a brutal time of 2020, after the pandemic, we wanted something that felt nourishing to uh, our audience, our guests. Um, Charleston is a very holy city. It is a very special city for us. This is where we met. And we just really wanted to make sure that the dinner felt like a big hug to all those who were there. Um, that book um, by Nazaki Shanje is essentially her culinary memoir, where she kind of talks through her travels. She talks through her experience. Uh, in the industry, in food, um, through the various places and the various people she encompasses. So it was super important for us to bring elements of her memoir into the space, um, but to still tell it through our perspective, to tell it through our lens, and, and to also be able to talk about our relationships to spirituality through food. It's such a nourishing element, and they both intersect. Um, and so it was really important for us to make sure that that was like seen throughout. So you got that in the menu, you got that in the altar. We brought our ancestors into the altar. Um, we created a spiritual place, um, in essence and in actuality, last night, and it was um, it was great. It just it was a no-brainer to, to bring Monica and Valerie along for the ride, um, and, it, and it all worked well, and it felt really good, um, and and. 
Omar said last night it was such a matriarchal dinner and it was a matriarchal approach to food, which oftentimes a black women at the forefront of food doesn't get the reverence that we think it deserves. And so last night we were able to do that and we were able to put that forward through action and also through just being in that space. I want to talk about all of so many things that you just mentioned, but let's start with the food itself. Tell us some of what was served last night and how it incorporated the themes at the heart of the event. Um, I mean, so the menu, uh, which was primarily composed by everyone here, um, was only two courses. You know, uh, it was very important to not have any pretense over the meal. Um, when you think about the language of food and, and, and black celebration, it's never really about coursework. You know, it's it's really about um, the food is almost like uh, a, a canvas. You know where people can kind of join in the painting of our of our togetherness, you know? And I, I think it's like a really beautiful, a beautiful way. And so like, you know, I'll let Valerie talk about what she made, but like all the courses were um, inspired by either familiar relationships or, you know, our personal cultural relationships, uh, whether it be to personal family members or personal experiences, or actually one of the dishes was pulled directly from out of the book called The Good Salad, which was a very unique salad mentioned by Ntozaki Shange in the book. But um, yeah, Valerie, you want to talk about Yeah, I'd love to hear about your, some of the specific dishes canvas. and the inspiration. Uh, so first I want to say, I have never been so flattered as when uh, Omar and, and Sybil asked me to join this team. And, uh, and I've known Omar for a, a while, several years now, and, uh, you know, he's, he's famous. And sometimes I email him, and sometimes I text him, and sometimes I hear from him. And then <laughs> when he texted me, it was like, oh, my goodness, what's the matter? And then when he said, we want you to come to Charleston, it was like, oh, this is, this is wonderful. So, you know, Omar and Sybil did most of the main dishes, and I kind of, like, tucked in things around the edges. So I made biscuits, which in, in Philadelphia, that's one of the things that we, in my restaurant, we made all the time. And it's one of the things that I get asked about the most, which I still find surprising. I have a friend who talks about in her professional like what she like what she loves and then what loves her. So I love the food of the Af African diaspora. What loves me? Biscuits. And um, I made a a bread like a quick bread, sort of like a cornbread, but with white flour and with rice, like cooked rice. And it kind of looks back at food that people might have made when it was way more important not to waste anything. And to have uh, something, one thing you can use up cooked rice so that doesn't go to waste. And you have this bread that's a lot like sort of moisture and has more staying power. power. So it tastes kind of like cornbread, but it just has this other element. And I made um, perlu, you know, rice. Like, you know, I, I had a restaurant called The Rice Cafe Kitchen Girl Rice Cafe, and in growing up in my family, we literally had rice every day. And and I, and when I was a child, I didn't know that everybody didn't eat rice every day. And the other thing that I made was a corn and okra fritter, which actually was a recipe from 
my sous chef when I had my restaurant, her family was from Mississippi, and she we would just talk about food. It's like you know, my my mother used to make that, my father used to make this, and she told me about that, and I was like, that is great. Ask your mother how to make it, and so we put it on the menu, and it was on the menu from whenever it was. She told me about it till when we closed, and I really love it, and I feel like. So we had that, the, the fritter with a, um, a tomato chutney on the top, and I really thought it was like okra corn and tomatoes in a pickup form. So it was like just the, the perfect like reference to that dish. Yum. I'm, I'm feeling very hungry now. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, you mentioned the atmosphere, and you also mentioned there was an art installation. I mean, tell me how you were communicating with guests beyond just the food, but, you know, how did you tell this story through the event space, through any presentation, through the menu? I mean, I'd love to hear about how you sort of cultivated this really special space, it seems like, for the evening. Well, I mean, I guess we can begin with the, um, the most important piece at the dinners that we do like this is the altar. Um, it was very special in this dinner because we had other people featured in this dinner cooking with us. And so um, traditionally in an altar, um, it's family portraits um, or, or like talismans that, um, that represent things that our ancestors loved, foods, drinks. You're actually like serving a spiritual body, you know, um, and keeping that spiritual body happy because we all feel that they're present with us in every moment whether it's guidance or whether they're just kind of there, they're just with, they're here, they're here with us right now. They're on the mic, but you can't tell. <laughs> um, and so like, that's the, that's the, the main piece and Sybil usually makes those. And um, if you want to talk about how you, how you t typically design them. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of quirky, but I, I let the spirit guide me when making the altars. Uh, there's a focal, there's a center, which is usually like a shovel um, that Omar found uh, from his ancestors, um, Former, it was a former it was plantation. A former site, plantation, so, yeah. yeah. Um, and he kind of trespassed and, and found this shovel in essentially like a slave quarters yeah. um, that is probably a good 200 years old um, that we are very delicate with. Um, but it's looking at it, touching it, you feel that there's a presence that comes along with it. Um, so I usually lay that down first, and I and I build around it. And you know, it's just literally photos of of our loved ones in frames. And and as Omar said, it was. It was really special because I was able to include Monica and Valerie's family members in that as well. And there was a moment when, when Monica walked in the room and you, you looked at the frame and you said, hi, mom. And I got chills, you know, and it's just like, you know that they're here with you. And, and we just really wanted to bring them in the room and for them to enjoy the dinner right alongside of us. And so the, the table was adorned with other things, as Omar said, with books, with provisions, plantains, sweet potatoes, rice, various things that that we knew that, that our loved ones enjoyed and, and appreciated. But another cool um, thing was that like other chefs that were prepping in the same space as us yeah. came out and brought them the chills. One, was it Jovan, who Jovan al almost moved into tears. Yeah. Um, I think we're going to have to start getting used to that because yeah. like, we get surprised by it every time, but <laughs> it's been like at least the fourth time we've done this and it's yeah. moved folks to tears. Yeah. But um, the other elements of the art that were in the space... Um, I'm a visual artist, so we made we made a triptych, a painting that was red, black, and green with um, with eye statements painted over different colors that represented aspects of our food ways. So for, there was a green painting that represented like stewed greens, a black one that re represented barbecue and charring, and then a red one that represented um, a palm oil, which is a, a like tr more frequently used in West African cooking, but like 
it's almost like a through line of, of representation of how we cook and how we eat. But the I statements being placed over those paintings represent that there's a person who made it. Because most people, regardless of who you are, creed, class, or color, if the food is good, it seems like magic. But it's even more magical what is made by people who are denied their humanity. And so having, that, having those I statements placed over paintings that represented those foodways was just like a, uh, and typically carried out by the women, um, it, 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 it places our bodies dead center and our minds dead center. Um, and then there was another um, sculptural, sculptural element called, uh, it's a representation of Kalana ware, which is a former, formerly produced earthenware by our ancestors in their slave cabins. They had to make their own plateware um, that would come from clay deposits and the locality, specifically um, in South Carolina. And that was uh, fragmented pieces. Our histories are fragmented, and so those pieces represented those fragmented histories with a woman named Elsie that was drawn above it to represent the, the women who, who nurtured these slave, enslaved communities, you know? Um, they also had Miss Betsy. Betsy. Yeah, so we, when we were doing this dinner, we, we knew we were going to have an art element, and we really wanted to make sure that we represented the folks that are from the area and that we represented the low country. And so we reached out um, to a sweetgrass um, maker, artisan. Her name is Miss Betsy, and she makes sweetgrass baskets. And we used the sweetgrass baskets as bread baskets for dinner, um, but we also invited her into the space to sit down maybe weave some baskets, but to just exist in this space um, because she is art, because they are art and they are artists and we wanted to make sure that we were honoring them, um, literally. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And we treated her like a queen that night and, and that was it. We wanted her to be there as art, to sit in her glory, make her baskets, maybe sell her baskets. And we but, use her baskets and too. And we used them, the yeah. And just, we just needed her in the space because we wanted to make sure that um, that we showed that we respected the people that we were cooking amongst dead or living in the low country and the Gullah Geechee people have been so great to us and welcome us like family. We wanted to do the same. Sounds like an incredible evening, incredibly powerful. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have to chat about it for now. Do you want to add something else? I do want to add off? the last art element was Monica's please. cakes. Oh, you want to um, please talk yes, about it? Yes, yes. And, and we put her cakes on the altar and that was like artwork and, and we just talk about the cakes real yes, quick please, please do that was we hard. need to hear <laughs> about the cakes <laughs> thank you Sybil um, so the cakes were inspired by the book looking at diasporic sites of celebration of nourishment um, trying to bring in sweet potatoes sweet potato layer cake the buttermilk um, buttermilk buttercream and served with uh, rye crumble and uh, burnt honey Hennessy caramel um, so I was just trying to think about the spaces of joy that I know and the spaces of spiritual and contentment and possibility that I know of. Um, so using those diasporic ingredients, um, but also bringing some of that Saturday night into the Sunday morning um, ritual, some of that idea. So thank you. And it was I, I an honor to, to have those um, as a part of the altar, which was I have very to moving. say the, that in addition to that, the cake being beautiful and delicious, Monica went a step further in the presentation, and the presentation was the cake on a plate with wrapped in a paper napkin. So the way that if you went to your aunt's house... I keep forgetting to mention that part. <laughs> you went to your aunt's house and you just didn't have room for cake, or you had to leave right then, she might give you a plate with it wrapped up and or if you were at, had dinner at church and you had to take some of that cake home 
he would just wrap it in a napkin, and it was so evocative. It's like a love language. Yeah, yeah, it was. Well, thank you all so much for joining us today, and thank you everyone for listening to HRN's live coverage of Charleston Wine and Food Festival. I'm Dylan Hoyer. Special thanks to Ben's Friends, an addiction and substance abuse support group for members of the food and beverage industry and Indigo Road Restaurant Group for making our coverage possible. You can listen to all of our coverage on our podcast, Heritage Radio Network on Tour. Find it on heritageradionetwork.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.